Sarah and Davis have chosen to write their own vows. So Sarah. I promise to care for you and love you our entire life. I promise to be your best friend. Whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just be saying best friend, okay? Pete's my best friend. Hold up. I thought I was his best friend. We've been through a lot together. Gosh, we have been through so much together. Second grade was really rough for us. I remember when he fell off the monkey bars. I mean, he gave me his fruit roll-up. I mean, I gave him my fruit roll-up. That was like... <sighs> I hope he knows that he's my best friend. Our friendship has survived so much. <laughs> you think that this is gonna divide us? I promise to be your most loyal friend. I'm loyal too! She is confusing me so much right now. She is my wife, he is my best friend. Who's the best friend here? Who? As this journey of life completely changes us, we'll be together forever. Dude, 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 Aw, he's crying. <laughs> I'm gonna have to be gluten-free. Oh man, dude, you go gluten-free. I have to be gluten-free. And I don't want to be gluten-free, man. Oh, it's the end of an era, Davis. It's the end of an era. Yes, I am crushing these vows. I would like to object right now, but I want to do it at the right time. Please don't do it, Pete. Look, Please. I'm going to object. I'm going to object. My hand's going up. My hand's going up. Don't. I it's bet. going up. I object. <laughs> Hey, we're in part two of this series and what happy couples know and to recap where we were uh, last time, all of us come into relationships or dream of relationships or imagine relationships with things in mind that we want to be true of those relationships. We move toward engagement with uh, those things. We move toward the altar with those things. And essentially we said last week, it's essentially like we all have a box of hopes and dreams and desires. And even if you're single and not dating anybody right now, you could sit down and sort of script out in general terms. Hey, if I'm ever in a relationship, if I'm ever married, here's what I'd like it to look like. And all of us have an idea, you know, how much money we'll have, how we'll spend the money, if we'll have a budget, not a budget, on um, where we'll live, we'll rent, we'll buy, we'll wait and save money, um, what she will or what she won't um, sleep in, how we're going to handle or how the chores will be handled, how conflict resolution would be handled. Um, some of you dream of the day that you'll get to be parents, and I hope you have a, a parent of, of this little fella right here, and I hope you aren't the parent of this little fella right here. I don't know if you can see the eyes on this little child. I don't know why they even created it, but just to play along, if you have, can you see the eyes? I, this is creepy. If you have this child, this child will end up on the top of whatever you live in at some point in your life as a parent. I know this. So anyway, we all have, we all have an idea. I'm going to set you right back here, honey. You go to sleep, okay? Good child. Put you in one land later. Um, we all have some idea of what the future is going to look like relationally. Now, the, the problem is, or the challenge, it's not even a problem, it's just the challenge. The challenge is this. When we daydream about the future, our future, as, as we daydream and as we imagine, it organizes itself around our box. It, our, it organizes itself around our hopes, wishes, dreams, and desires. Uh, to put it another way, um, when I was single, I never daydreamed about becoming the perfect person for someone. I daydreamed about finding the perfect person for me. Is that just me? I never daydreamed about, I can't wait until I become the perfect person for someone. I daydreamed about the perfect person for me. So when I met Sandra, I thought, well, she's perfect for me. So I brought her ring and my box 
to the altar. I brought her ring and my box to the wedding. And the thing is, everything in my box seems perfectly reasonable to me. Why wouldn't everybody not wanna center their lives around what's in my box? And she brought her box to the altar and to the wedding as well. And everything in her box seemed perfectly reasonable to her. But the problem is, when we, when we hand our box of hopes, dreams, and desires to somebody else, the density changes and the weight changes and what begins and feels to us like a hope or a dream or a desire feels to them like an expectation. And the interesting thing is this, on this side of the box, it's all hopes, dreams, and desires. On that side of the box, it's all expectations. I'm like, well, why wouldn't everybody want to order their life this way? And the person on the other side of the box is going, because that just feels like a lot of expectations to me. From where I'm standing, hopes, dreams, and desires. From where you're sitting, from where she's standing, all about the expectations. An expectation, as you know, or if you don't know, here's the definition. It's a strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future. It's the strong belief that something will happen. Honey, I know we're not there yet, but we're moving in that direction, aren't we, honey? Dear, I, I know this is the first year, but eventually, right, honey? It's, it's that subtle pressure that things are going to be the way I imagine they're gonna be. They're gonna be the way, that, the way that you imagine they're gonna be. It's subtle, it's all about the future. And here's the thing, anytime, anytime we attempt to recreate or avoid something from the past, Anytime we attempt in a relationship to recreate or avoid something from the past, our hopes and dreams and our desires begin to feel like expectations because we want to create a preferred future. It may be a preferred future that's exactly like the, the past that we grew up in, we wanna recreate it, or it may, be a, it may be a preferred future that's very different than the family that we grew up in. But either way, as soon as we try to shape the future of a relationship, it begins to feel like expectations to the person that we're in relationship with. And when couples exchange boxes, and, and we do, this just happens. I don't know that it can be completely avoided, but when we exchange boxes, couples begin negotiating with each other, bargaining with each other, sometimes bribing each other. I will if you will. If you'll do this the way I want to do it, then we'll avoid conflict and we'll resolve conflict the way you do it. If you'll get on a budget and stay on a budget, then perhaps one day we can live in the style that you want to live in and back and forth and back and forth. And what happens is, without it ever, no one ever intends for this to happen. Eventually, the relationship is characterized, as we said last week, by a debt-debtor relationship. You owe me. You owe me, you owe me. That's what husbands are supposed to do. That's what wives are supposed to do. That's what men are supposed to do in a relationship. That's how women are supposed to re respond in a relationship. And next thing you know, we're negotiating back and forth, bickering. And it's all about you owe me, you owe me, you owe me, you owe me. And the problem is, we said this last week, that when you get into this dynamic, when this dynamic characterizes the relationship, you cannot recognize, you cannot recognize love. You can't give love and you can't receive love because you can't appreciate it and you can't even recognize it. Now, let me illustrate it this way. You see, if you owe me money, you can't give me money, right? If you owe me money, you can't give me money. If you owe me money and you give me money, I don't see it as a gift and I don't receive it as a gift. I see it and receive it as a payment. And if you owe me money and say, Andy, hey, I just really appreciate you know, what you're doing. I wanna give you $100. Well, if you owe me more than $100, not only am I not grateful and I don't see it as a gift, my next question is, where's the rest? So consequently, so consequently, gratitude is minimal. So in a relationship that has become a debt-debtor or the, the dynamic of the relationship is a debt-debtor relationship, as long as somebody feels like somebody owes them, they don't receive it as love, they can't see it as love, and the other person can't even extend love. 
So the question is, how do we keep this from happening? How do we keep legitimate hopes, dreams, and desires from becoming and feeling like expectations? And the answer is, we answer the following question the way that happy couples answer the following question. And the question is, what does he owe me? What does she owe me? What does he owe me? What does she owe me? And happy couples all answer this question the same way. They answer the question, nothing. They don't owe me anything. They know that they owe each other everything but are owed nothing in return. They know that they owe each other everything but are owed nothing in return, which, granted, doesn't make any sense. But as you get to know really, really happy couples, there's something about their relationship that doesn't make any sense. Now, this is the essence, this is the substance, this is right in the crosshairs of what a Christian marriage is all about. Now, a Christian marriage, and I, I don't know how you were raised or what your background is, but a Christian marriage is not a marriage that is conducted according to some sort of Christian code of conduct. That's not what a Christian marriage is. Um, in fact, great marriages aren't built on codes of conduct. If you're trying to build a relationship, you're engaged, you're dating somebody, or you're moving toward the altar, and you're trying to get them to act right and behave correctly, you're headed for trouble. Great relationships are not built on specific codes of conduct, and they're not even built on specific roles, and they're not a great relationship is not built on a sort of an exchange of services, of goods and services, that great relationships and a Christian marriage in particular, which, which, which is what we're talking about, a Christian marriage in particular, as I said last week, really boils down to being a submission competition where both people are racing to the back or to the end of the line. That in a great relationship, in any healthy relationship, instead of there being competition, instead of there being trying bargaining and negotiating, there's a sense of, well, she doesn't owe me, he doesn't owe me anything but I feel like I owe her, I owe him everything. Now today, I wanna to explain um, where I learned this and, and where I saw this and where we get this. And here's, here's the story, here's how it happened. At the end of Jesus' ministry, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he's hours away from being arrested. He gathers his guys together and he says to them, here's a few things I want you to remember. And toward the end of that time, as they're sharing their last Passover together, he says this. He said, I'm going to give you a brand new command. Now, this, was, this should have been very offensive. In fact, these Jewish boys should have gotten up and left the room, and here's why. We don't, this doesn't bother us, doesn't phase us in, in the least. But the only person that could give a command was God. And God had given all the commands through Moses. So you can, you can talk about the commands, you can um, exegete the commands, you can explain the commands, you can apply the commands, you can prioritize the commands, but you don't make up new ones. So there was a sense in which Jesus was equating himself with Moses and in a sense claiming to speak for God. And these guys should have gotten up and left the room, but the night had already been very confusing. Judas had left to run an errand. Um, he just, Jesus basically took their most sacred holiday and turned it into something all about himself. So the whole night is crazy. And he says, guys, I know this is crazy. I'm kind of stepping in front of Moses. I'm stepping between you and God, but I'm gonna give you a new command. And here's what he said. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. To which they may have responded, that's not new. To which Jesus would have responded, I'm not through because here's the rest of it. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now this is an epic moment. This is, this is such a big moment because Jesus says, I'm reducing all the Jewish law from 600 and something to two to one. That at the end of the day, these are your marching orders relationally. You are to treat other people the way I have treated you. And 
He could have gone around the room to each one of those guys and said, Matthew, you remember when we met? You were a tax collector. You were an embarrassment to your family. You were an embarrassment to the nation. And do you remember what I said to you when I met you, Matthew? Matthew's like, yep, I remember. You asked me to follow you. And Peter, you remember how you didn't want Matthew following us because you didn't want to be associated with the tax, associated with the tax gatherer? And Peter's like, yep. And remember, I let both of you stay in the club. And Matthew, do you remember where we went when I invited you to follow me? Yep. We went to my house. Do you remember who we invited? Peter's like, I remember who we invited. All of his tax gathering friends. It was the worst day of my life. <laughs> and Jesus said, Matthew, I want you to extend that kind of grace and that kind of mercy to every single you person you meet for the rest of your life. Nathaniel, you remember when we met? Oh, yeah. Remember, Nathaniel, you dissed my whole family. This isn't really a famous Bible story, but when Nathaniel heard about Jesus and that he was from Nazareth, his response was, Nazareth? What good thing could come from Nazareth? So Jesus could have said, remember, you dissed my family, my grandfamily, my stickball team, all of my childhood friends. You pretty much made us all sound like complete losers. Do you remember that, Nathaniel? I remember that. Did Nathaniel, you remember? I invited you to follow me. And I never brought it up again, did I? No, he never brought it up. He could have gone all the way, all the way around the room and said, okay, from now on, I want you to think about how I treated you. That's how I want you to treat everybody. And a few hours later, he would be arrested, and he would be tried, and he would be crucified. And that would be, in a few days, an aha moment from which they would never recover when they realized Jesus gave his life on our behalf, and he is asking us to do the same for other people. That's why this is sometimes called the law of Christ, or I call it the platinum rule. The golden rule is treat people the way you want to be treated. The platinum rule is treat people the way that God and Christ treated you. In fact, let me kind of make it simple to remember. When you're not sure what to say or do, you just love like God through Christ loved you. That's it. When you're not sure what to say or do relationally, you go, okay, how did God through Christ treat me when I was misbehaving, when I messed up, when I you know, broke a promise? When you're not sure what to say or do, you love like God through Christ loved you. This is, the, this is the big one. This is the marching orders. Every single New Testament imperative after the resurrection, every single New Testament imperative after the resurrection tees off and keys off of this big idea. As I've loved you, so you are to love other people. Then. A few years later, a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, who hated Christians, arrested Christians, tortured Christians, put Christians to death. If you hate Christians, you would love the Apostle Paul. He hated him more than you. You hate him in your mind. He hated him as a job, okay? And the Apostle Paul becomes a Jesus follower. And when he does, his life is completely transformed. And he takes this big idea of love others the way that God through Christ has loved us. He takes that big idea and he begins to apply it in all of his letters to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. He he begins to apply it to all kinds of relationships. He applies it to everything, including marriage. So whenever you read anything the Apostle Paul writes in his letters that says, do this or don't do that, do this or don't do that, here's what you need to remember. Every one of his commands, every one of his commands is linked specifically and directly to Jesus' command to treat others the way that I have treated you. He's not making stuff up. He's applying Jesus' brand new command. So in his letter to the Christians living in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul applies Jesus' new command to marriage. And here's what he says. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. I mean, what could be any clearer than that? Let's pray. 
Now, if this bothers you, I'm so glad it bothers you and I'm so glad you're here. I'm just gonna leave it up here to bother you. In fact, some of you would say, aha, that's why I quit going to church. That verse right there is why I quit going to church. That whole idea is why I don't like Christians. I am so glad you are watching or listening or in church today. I'm telling you, what you're about to hear, this is, this is so transformational. I love talking about this. The, uh, the, our English Bibles are translations from Greek text, and there were groupings of Greek text all over the East. And the oldest text, the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament, the oldest manuscripts of the Apostle Paul's letters, interestingly enough, if you, read, if you took this verse and you translated it literally, here's what it would say. It would say, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's no verb in this statement, in the oldest Greek manuscripts, there's no verb. The word submit isn't there. Now, before I explain why it's not there, I wanna explain something else, and this is so important. When the Apostle Paul's first century audience heard him teach about women submitting to their husbands, and I'll tell you where the verb came from in just a second. When the first century audience heard the Apostle Paul talk about women and wives submitting to their husbands, whereas we go, what, you know, and huh? Their response was, duh, not huh. They weren't like, what? There was, they were like, well, yeah, tell us something we don't know. They had no choice. I mean, this wasn't new information. This wasn't even a big deal. This was common ground. This didn't surprise anyone in Jesus' audience and ladies, believe it or not, no one was offended because men in that culture, both the Roman culture, Greek culture, and then the Jews had a version of this, men in that culture had something that's referred to as patria potestas, patria potestas. Patria potestas, these two words put together meant they had legal jurisdiction over their children and they had legal jurisdiction over their wives, essentially their wives belonged to them. So when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, that's like, Right, because if we don't, he'll sell us, he'll trade us, he'll have us arrested, he'll accuse us of some crime, and there won't be any witnesses, eyewitnesses to show up to dispute the claim, and of course we submit to our husbands. So this was not a big deal to them. But here's the cool thing, it's a big deal to us. And the reason it's a big deal to us is what comes later in the text. So why no verb in the oldest Greek text? Why does it say wives unto your husbands as unto the Lord? Why would it say that? Where did the Greek word and where did the verb come from for this verse? What happened is the verb that's not here is in the verse that, that precedes it. And this is a common Greek grammatical technique that a writer would make a statement and then infer the verb in the verses that follow. So the verb, the verse that comes before the wives submit to your husband is actually the big idea for everything that follows. So the question is, what's the verse before the verse? Because the verse before the verse is the verse that supplies us with the missing verb. And this was a game changer in the first century. Here's what Paul wrote. Submit to one another out of reference for Christ. This is the verb this is where the verb came from, and this is the verse that precedes wives submit to your husbands out of reverence to Christ. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, submission is mutual. It's mutual submission, and the idea of reverence, it's not out of reverence to one another. He says, no, you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And again, you see this throughout the New Testament. Many of us have missed this. Throughout the New Testament, Paul always ties his specific applications to what Jesus or what Christ did for us. And this is why I say that a Christian marriage is a submission competition. 
Because the apostle Paul says it's mutual. You are to submit to one another. I'm here for you. I'm not assuming that you're here for me. Oh, you're here for me? I didn't expect that. I didn't assume that. I'm gonna leverage everything I have. I'm gonna leverage everything I am. I'm gonna leverage my opportunities and my wealth and my resources and my personalities. I'm gonna leverage all of that for you. We may have different roles. We have different responsibilities. We have different gifts. We have different opportunities. We have different backgrounds. But we do not have different value. I'm telling you, in the first century, this was unbelievable. And Jesus is the model. So what Paul did is so brilliant. As Paul is beginning to make a very um, disruptive application, as he's about to make a very, very, very disruptive point in this primarily Greek and Roman culture, he begins, like any good communicator does, he begins where there's common ground. And the common ground was wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord, because everybody knew a wife had to submit herself to her husband. So, she, so he begins. Submit yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul begins where, where the common ground is and he goes from there. But then, but then he applies it to men. Here's what he says. We'll go to wives submit. Wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do unto the Lord. Now, when we see this, one other thing, <laughs> we immediately think, and women, I, I get this. Wives, I get this. Ladies, I get this. We immediately think, okay, of all the men who are not worth submitting to, right? So I did a survey and I found out it's actually 100% of the men are not worth submitting to, okay? 100%. So, but his point is, ladies, going back to Paul, his point is, ladies, I want you to place your husband or your man's, if you're moving in toward a permanent relationship, I want you to place your man's hopes, dreams, and desires ahead of your own. I want you to deal out of his box, not because he expects it, not because he expects it, but because your heavenly father request it. But what came next? What came next was shocking. What came next had an effect on the audience that mimics or parallels our, first, our 21st century response to wives submit to your husbands. Because in that culture, again, it was assumed. But what came next, I'm telling you, it was so disruptive. It was so unbelievable. It was so new. It was so different. What comes next? What comes next is why what came first is so offensive to us. The reason we are so offended oftentimes by wives submit to your husbands is because what the apostle Paul asked husbands to do, and I'll connect those dots in just a minute. So this is what he says to the men. Husbands, love your wives. Now, we're like, well, of course, but in the first century, it wasn't of course. In the first century, it's wait, wait, wait. I don't have an obligation to my woman. My woman has an obligation to me. The apostle Paul says, I'm not finished. Husbands, love your wives just as, and this is the key, this is the connection, this is the link. These are the two words you should look for throughout the New Testament when you read the New Testament after the resurrection. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ, there it is, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now this is a Christian audience in Ephesus and the, the guys are like, wait, 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 wait. I know this story. This does not end well for Christ. This does not end well for Jesus. Okay, I, I know where you're going with this. And Paul, you, okay, we get the wives submit because I mean, they kind of have to, but now you're telling us that we have a responsibility toward women. We have a responsibility toward our wives that somehow you're, you're, you're inferring that there might even be a sense of equality. I mean, where are you going with this? And, and the thing is, we know where this goes. Jesus died for the church. Paul's still not done. 
He says, look at this. He says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. It's like he's saying, okay, if you can't get the theology thing about Jesus and the church, let me make it real simple for you guys. You are to love your wife. You are responsible to care for your wife. You are responsible to protect your wife as if she is you. Uh, this, was, uh, this was just more than they could imagine. And he says this, he, he who loves his wife loves himself. Well, Paul, what are you talking about? Paul says, because there's a mystery. There's a mystery that when two people are married, they become one flesh. So there's no division. There's no, there's no pulling away. They're one flesh. Men, your wives are one with you. I'm telling you as many times as you've heard this and as strange as it may be and as biblical as it may be, this was brand knew because he was equating men with women. This was scandalous. It's why I said, it's why I said this. What comes next is why what came first is so offensive to us. The reason we, this is so great, and if, if you're not a Christian or you've left Christianity or used to be a Christian, I, I'm sure you have good reasons. In fact, I'm, I'm sure you, I'm really sure you have good reasons. So I had read what you'd read, heard what you heard, you know, went to school where you went to school or experienced what you experienced in a different church. I get that, but I, I want you to hear this because this is so powerful, this is so powerful. The reason that we kind of bristle, and that women, you bristle when you, you know, wives submit to your husbands, is because our culture, our American culture, our Western culture embraces the equality of men and women. We embrace the equality of men and women, so the minute we hear somebody, somebody's supposed to submit to somebody else, that's like, Ugh. but ladies, here's the amazing news. Guess who introduced this idea of equality to the world? Guess who rolled this out in such a big way that it actually made a big difference in culture? Guess who was the first person with any authority that declared you equal with men? Jesus. I'm telling you, I know this is naive. I think every woman should be a Jesus follower if for no other reason but this, okay? He argued for your value. He argued for your worth. He argued for your dignity before it was a category for anybody else in the world. And the Apostle Paul comes along and says, men, because of the way your heavenly father views the women in your life, you are to treat them with extraordinary, extraordinary value. One day, Jesus is teaching and uh, the teachers of the law and Pharisees come along. They're always trying to trick him and ask him trick questions to you know, divide him from the crowd. And they come to him one day and they say, Jesus, we got a question, a marriage question. Can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason because there was a group of religious leaders that taught a, a man can just declare it and say three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and she's gone for burning the toast, you know, for kicking over, for spilling the water, for not getting home on time, for not picking up the kids on time, or he's just tired of her, or, you know, he just, he just, she doesn't please him anymore. What in the world does that mean? And so there was a group of Jewish people and Jewish teachers of the law who said, this is what Moses meant by what Moses said about you know, marriage and divorce, that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason at all. So they said, Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason at all? Or is there like a list of things that a man can leverage and can get a divorce and divorce his wife? And Jesus looks at him and says, there's no reason. There's no reason because you're one. Now go home and treat her like you treat yourself. Like, no, no, we're looking for a list of reasons. Jesus said, there's no reason. You see, you think you're better. You think you're worth more. You think you mean more to God, but you don't. And when you married her, you became one. Now go home and treat her as well as you treat yourself. I'm telling you, the dignity, the value, the worth that Jesus gave women, and read the Gospels. Ladies, read the Gospels. Women flocked 
to Jesus. They flocked. They supported his ministry. They raised money for his ministry. They were the first person to see him after he rose from the dead, which I'm telling you, that gave women extraordinary dignity as well because a woman's word in court was meaningless. You, if you called a woman to testify in court, if they even let her in, her testimony was almost meaningless. And yet all the gospels tell us that women were the very first people to see Jesus alive after he rose from the dead. And the reason the gospels tell us that it's because that's what happened. And the reason we know that's what happened is if you were making up a story in the first century about a resurrection, you would not have women be the first people who saw it because nobody believed the testimony of a woman. And so Jesus rolls this out. The apostle Paul pumps it up and he says, I know you weren't surprised when I said women are to submit to their husbands, but I'm telling you, men, women, in God's eyes, you are equally value and you are to submit to one another. This was life changing. And granted, it took the church a long, long time to catch up. And in some quarters, it's still taking the church a long time to catch up with this teaching. But our society, do not deceive, don't be deceived. You know, our society that values men and women, that's not natural. There are other places in the world where women have, are still treated the way they were in the first century. You know that. It's not natural. This is a shadow. It's a shade. It's a leftover of the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul as it relates to women. So back to Paul. What's his point? His point is men. Let me ask you a question. What is life to you? So we start, we're back to the men. Men, what is life to you? Okay. I don't know. Just think, what, what is? I don't have a life. Yeah, you do. Okay, men, what is life to you? Here's his point. Just put her before that. Whatever life is to you, put her before that. And you can't do that, you can't do that as long as you've got a big box of expectations between you and her. And ladies, he would say, you can't love your husband, you can't submit to your husband as you're trying to mutually submit to each other as long as you've got a big box of expectations sitting between you. And this is what great, happy couples know, that somehow they get rid of this and they become all for the other person. So here's the question. How do you get everything out of the expectation box back into the hopes, dreams, and, and you know, desires and dreams box? And then what do you do with it once you get it here? And the answer to the first question in terms of how you get everything you know, from here back to here is you decide, as we said last week, he doesn't owe me. She doesn't owe me. I ho, I ho, oh, ho, I owe her. Hi ho, hi ho, it's off to work we go, I don't know. <laughs> Just kind of go in there. You're yawning. Is this that boring? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Go ahead and yawn. I almost yawned when I saw you yawn because yawning is contagious. So it's, it's really bad when, sorry. Just kidding. I'm, this, is this, I hope this isn't your first time here. No, okay, good. All right, good. Sorry. It was just that big yawn. I thought, wow, I thought I was doing pretty good. Anyway, Woodstock City, can I have your attention, please? We're, we're, we're back. Okay, so the question is, how, how do we get all this sorted out? And you decide, it's, it's really a decision. It's not a feeling, it's a decision. I just decide, she doesn't owe me. You just decide, he doesn't owe me. They don't owe me anything, but I owe them everything. But for this to work, according to Paul, it has to be mutual. Why? Because he said, this is so powerful, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is what oneness in a relationship looks like. His best over yours her best over yours. Now, last week I gave you a little homework assignment, but it was a thought 
process. I, I asked you two questions. I said, this week, I want you to think about what's in your box, and then I want you to think about, is somebody carrying it around? I want you to ask the question, okay, what's in here? We should know what's in here. And then secondly, we should know, have I accidentally or maybe purposefully handed this to somebody and I am expecting them to fulfill my hopes, desires, and dreams? And so the question that I want you, your homework assignment this week is this, and this is a little more dangerous, okay? I want you to ask them, what's in your box? What's in your box? Not, not on the way home, you gotta, you gotta wait for right, the right time. I just want you to ask her, ask him. I just want you to say, what's in your box? Now for some of you, it's like, oh no, he's here. Now I'm gonna have to do it or she's here. Now I'm gonna, I, I'm just, okay, because I care about you, okay? I want you to ask, what's in your box? And then what, the next thing I want you to do, and this is gonna be really difficult for some of you. After you ask what's in your box, then I want you to stop talking and listen. Now, guys, when you, if you ask your, your woman, your wife, your fiance, you know, what's in your box, she may faint that you've even asked or considered. She may get mad. We've been married 20 years and you still don't, okay, that you just don't talk. You just take it and take it because, yeah, you've been married 20 years and you don't know what's in her box because you've been wondering why she doesn't deal out of your box, okay? There may be, you know, some distance. So you just ask and you listen. And ladies, if you ask your man, you know, your husband, your fiance, what's in your box, I'll tell you what he's going to say, probably. He's going to say, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Aren't the Falcons on? <laughs> we don't even know we have a box. We're not lying. We don't know. We don't know what's in there. Now, we, we expect you to fulfill these wishes and dreams and desires that we've never defined. But ladies, I'm stereotyping a little bit, but there's a kind of a, I don't know how to talk about this. Guys, that's why I asked you last week to start thinking about it. You need to know, and you do know. And ladies, here's the other thing about many of us men. And we're scared to talk about it. And men, the reason you need to talk about it is you're scared to talk about it, but you're expecting her to fulfill it, and you've never told her. And it's scary. In fact, it's terrorizing in some ways. But you talk about it. This is, you know, the what's in your box question. This is the I'm all in question. This is the I am more interested in what's your box, in your box than what's in mine. This is the I'm all in. I'm all into this relationship so much. I want to know what your hopes and your dreams and your desires this is the I'm all in. This is the less self question. And you know something about less self people? Less self people are happier people. Find the happiest people you know, less self. And less self relationships are the richest and the richer relationships. Now, I know, you know, if you're paying attention to this, in your mind, you're going, yeah, but what about, what about, and you're arguing, I get that, I would do the same thing. So I know for some of you, there's like, wait, 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 I have one really, really big objection if I'm gonna move forward with this, okay? Okay, Andy, if I take the pressure off, you'd have no idea what he's gonna do. If I take the pressure off, you have no idea how much money she's gonna spend. If I take the pressure off, he'll never come home from work. He'll just live there, okay? If I take the pressure off, he'll never follow through. She'll never follow through. If I take the pressure off, if I take the pressure off, I'm your what? I'm your what? I'm afraid. I'm afraid she won't. I'm afraid he will. I'm afraid he'll start. I'm afraid she'll stop. 
But my friends, this is the way forward. This is the way forward. And if your relationship has devolved to basically a tug of war over spoken, there you go, and unspoken things in a box, spoken and unspoken expectations, being the first person to drop the rope is terrifying. I know how this works, okay? It's like, okay, honey, you heard what he said about the rope. So, okay, I'm gonna count to three. We're gonna drop it at the same time, right? Because if I'm afraid, if I let pressure off first, this is just going in your direction. We're gonna be living in, in your box. It would just be all about you. So when I count to three, now, listen, there's no hope till you let go of the rope. There's not. And because you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you have to go first. And I'll tell you why. Because when you were dead in your trespasses and your sin, God, through Christ, dropped his end of the rope. Look, he did something for you, whether or not you ever did anything in response to what he did for you. That is the gospel. This is why all New Testament post-resurrection imperatives and commands in the New Testament all tie back into as God through Christ did for you. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. At the cross, God went first. Jesus' followers go first. Happy couples, happy couples put each other first by going first in an effort to be last. That Jesus' followers, they put each other first by dropping that rope first in an effort to be last. So I wanna challenge you this week, whatever that looks like in your relationship, to just drop it. And then find out what's in their box. And then listen and take notes. And maybe start taking action. And if you're concerned about, but Andy, what about all of my hopes and all of my dreams and all of my desires? I mean, what about my stuff? I mean, I still have all this stuff and I, I just, you know, what do I do with it? That's what we're gonna talk about next week. So don't miss part three of what happy couples know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to talk about there are as many questions as there are people listening or watching or in the room. And yet this is your truth. And for most of us, there's enough that's intuitive about this. We know it's true and we've seen other people do it. And you know, the tug of war has been going on for so long, we can't even imagine what this looks like perhaps. So would you give each of us wisdom to know what to do with what we just heard? Would you give us the courage to do it? Father, for those who are here that are single and they're not dating anybody right now or they're just dating, I pray that you would just help them know how to contextualize this, to prepare them for what happy couples know when they find that man or that woman, that person they're gonna spend the rest of their life with. But mostly, thank you for sending your son Jesus to do for us what we did not deserve, that set for us an example of how we're to treat other people. And we pray all of these things in the matchless name of our Savior and Lord Jesus. Amen.